Hello! Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. This is a podcast where I speak with other people in healing-type professions about the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. And there's a lot of caring of self going on right now, I hope, for all of us. This interview was actually recorded pre-coronavirus, so just wanted to let you know, why are they not mentioning coronavirus? Because it didn't exist yet. But I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. But before we get there, I wanted to invite you to become friends with me on Instagram. Instagram is truly, you've heard me say it before, it's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite places to connect with people. So if you're interested in connecting with me, Instagram is the best way to do that. And you can find me at Head Heart Therapy on Instagram. So let me tell you about today's guest. As a leadership maximizer, Monica Black guides leaders to truly understand who they really are at the core and therefore the very ideal of who they ultimately aspire to be. So please enjoy my conversation with Monica Black. Hi, Monica. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi there. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. Well, I am very excited to have you because, as I said before we started the recording, one of my dearest, dearest friends of all time, Livia Budries, said that you were an amazing human. And I was like, I need amazing humans on my podcast. So hook us up. And she did. And here we are. I love it. So grateful for that. And especially coming from such a dynamic spirit out in the world. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love for you to start off by telling folks a little bit more about who you are and what you do. So I'm just going to bring it all in from my, my heart and soul. You know, look, this lifetime, because last lifetime I was a warrior, this lifetime I decided I wanted to learn how to breathe and I wanted how to mm. learn from my strengths and into my joy because I realized that my ancestors had not breathed for the past three generations. Ooh. So who am I? My name is Monica Black and Monica means counselor. My middle name is oh, really? Layla. It does. I know. It's like the one thing my parents did well because they did not get along. Wow. <laughs> so Monica means counselor and Layla means the night. So I'm counselor of the night and I share that. Oh, girl. <laughs> oh, man. I share that and celebrate that. Because it's been my wonderful journey in this life to help people to find their light and lead from it, despite mm -hmm. the shadows. I was never one who was designed to stand in the shadows. And if you asked me to, I would buck you immediately. If you asked anybody I love to care about to stand in a shadow, I was like, that will not do. I would run across the playground and snatch you up and bring you into the light. Of course, you'd be upset because it was a little bit bright. And, <laughs> you know? and a little bit abrupt. I know nothing about doing that with other people. <laughs> at all, right? Nothing I can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know why Olivia wanted us to talk. I love this. Yes, okay, love it. Received. So that's exactly it. So I'm designed to help people lead from their light. And in order to do that, we have to start to lead from the other half of our soul. And in order to do that, we have to find our joy. And so that's where life has brought me. That's what I do. I used to do that as a psychologist. I moved into positive psychology before it was sexy and added the coaching aspect because that's where I could live and lead from the best seat on my bus. Mm -hmm. In the matrix, I'm designed to pull people out of the matrix onto the Ebuchadnezzar. We will fly you safely to Zion mm -hmm. and 
I just met the mayor of Zion recently. I know who's going to do the talk shows in Zion, who's going to do the rock band in Zion. So I'm building a crew there so you Mm. can be free. But I'm also designed to find a way for you to pace your authentic self back into the matrix and get paid double for your relevance. Okay. No. I'm ready to be taught. (laughs) Yeah, add zero to it. That's what I say. Or somebody taught me to say, I should say. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So, gosh, there's so much there that I want to dig into. But I think I'd love to hear the origin story of what it was like for you growing up and how, how you came to get your PhD in psychology and then what has led to the next steps of who you are now, right? Because it's, I'm seeing a, a trend of people shifting from therapist to coach. And I think that there's a cultural reason for that. So start in childhood and tell us all about how you got here. Okay, great. So as I said, I was a warrior last lifetime. I turned on in this world at about the age of four. And even when I was four and I saw things like sexism and racism and colorism, I was like, that makes no sense. Hmm. I was like, what are you doing? Hmm. As people try to throw their shadows at me and or, you know, say things about me that were not healthy or happy. My natural reaction was like, what's wrong with you today? Did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Do you need help? Do you want to talk? Because you're not talking about me. And I was just very clear from a young age that people were offering information about who they were and where they were stuck. And I could just hear that despite the way in which they tried to throw it at me. Mm. So I was raised in Columbus, Ohio. Oh my God, Um, I'm from Fairfield. What? Oh, yeah, just down 71. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So you're going to appreciate this. My parents were the first African Americans to take full residence in a suburb called Upper Arlington. Yes. Yes. Ah, I had so a boyfriend from there at one time. Yeah. Oh, so I know. There we go. Yep. So there I was in Upper Arlington, first African Americans um, wow. to navigate that school system. My parents moved in in 1969. I'm really grateful for the journey that they chose. It was my mom's soul who chose it. It was very much her way of joining the movement. She thought, okay, now we're going to progress. We're going to move on up. As she told me one time in her 50s, she just said, I thought more people were coming. So we ended up. Oh, funny. We ended up <laughs> like, I'm here. Where, yeah. Where's the party? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. And so here's the thing. I really, she was a very strong soul. My dad had a very kind soul. And I share this because neither of them learned to love themselves. They never found space, place, or opportunity, despite all the struggle on behalf of the people, to ever figure out how to love themselves or to realize that that was part of the revolution and that that's actually required. Right. So I was really raised in a family out in the suburbs by two parents who were still navigating their identities and their souls this lifetime, who had their own struggles and just never became healed, never became whole. Mm -hmm. I was very much the child that could see and feel their pain. And so I was always doing things in my own life because I was clear on who I was to say, if you can see me and see my light and see what I'm doing, then perhaps you'll catch a glimpse of yourself. That was really what it was all for. In the third grade, I became a high jumper. By the grace of 
gratitude of a leader named Mr. Mitchell, who I did not know was the top field and track coach in the state of Ohio. He actually was my gym teacher. And so I knew him as Mr. Mitch. So my parents put me in gymnastics class because I was filled with energy and they just needed me to go. Right. Oh my God. I understand this. So I'm in gymnastics class and they're trying to teach me how to do a back handspring. And Mm -hmm. I can't, I keep doing back tucks. Which is the harder of the two. So let's tell people that. (laughs) It's the harder of the two, but my soul is like, we're just gonna do it. And we're gonna do it again. So literally I leave that night. I can't figure out how to stay on the ground. I ended up going across town to the Y. My mom's in the sauna hanging out for hours. So they have a, you know, a gymnastics mats and whatnot there. So I'm trying to figure out how to do these things called back handsprings and keep my hands on the ground and back tuck, back tuck, back tuck. And so literally 30, 40, 50, 60 back tucks later, I'm now back at my home gym in my class. And right before I got to do, finally learned how to do a back handspring, I did one more back tuck and I had so much hang time in the air that I apologized to Mr. Mitchell. (laughs) I can see this as a movie or a sitcom and I can just (laughs) see, yeah, this is great. I love it. I feel like it'd be like a little short snippet of something, but yeah. Yeah. And so what happened is, is I was then invited by Mr. Mitchell, even though I was feeling a little bit dejected and out of place and like, I can't get this thing. And it's the first time that I'm like going after something and I can't get it to work. Usually if I put my mind to something, I can figure it out pretty quickly. So this Mm -hmm. is because break the barrier for me. And instead of me uh, seeing me as a deficit in the little black girl at the all white school who can't keep her hands on the ground, he, (laughs) right. He's like, Oh, this one, which he could have reasonably done given the context and, you know, just everything that was going on. Instead he says, you know, I do a track and field day every year at the school. Would you try the high jump? And I said, sure, Mr. Mitch. So I became a high jumper, grace and gratitude in the third grade. And I end up jumping over my own head in the seventh grade. And then I go on to jump six, two at the University of Michigan. I become the shortest collegiate high jumper in the country. <laughs> How tall are you? Five feet four, five feet four. And I'm that's five. It. See, yeah. there we go. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. here's the thing. Here's why I share this. Most of my life, everybody just came up and saw me for my deficit. So I would Mm -hmm. win rather big track meets and they would come up to me and they'd be like, how did you do it? I'm like, well, I've been jumping since the third grade. They're like, well, but you're short. I'm like, but I just won. And then the next logical question to them was, you must study what all the other competitors do. And I'm like, why would I do that? And they're like, well, because you're short. (laughs) You got it. This makes no sense. So they're like, but you're short. So you must study the tall girls. And I'm like, did somebody tell you you were short once? Again, back to the playground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're telling me something about you and where you're stuck. I just Mm -hmm. won the track. I'm happy. I got to go support my teammates. Do you need to work this out with me right now or not? You know, and so it was just fascinating that even though I was winning and even though somebody had just seen me win, that they still could not wrap their their mind around it. And I thought, Mm. wow, we are really hoodwinking people out here that your lived experience for what you saw cannot be true because we've told you at some point that somebody who's short cannot jump higher 
than somebody's tall. When jumping is all about your muscle structure and, you know, all these other things. I mean, it sounds like Ohio to <laughs> what I learned in Ohio was essentially what what you see is not reality. And so I lived my life feeling gaslit when I was in Ohio. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And so I lived trying to help myself and constantly just navigating around people's barriers. And I got mm-hmm. pretty good at it because I had this little skill set called jumping. And so I would just, if you try to put me on your battlefield, acting like I was the problem and you were going to fight me, I would just look at you in your mirror because my assumption was you had an internal conflict. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And mm -hmm. I would be like, I'm not here to fight you. And I would just turn the fight around and show up in your mirror like we can do this together. That was like literally my life in Ohio because everybody was on a battlefield and everybody wasn't happy with themselves. Everybody was stuck in some kind of shadow because somebody had told them that they didn't couldn't jump because they were too short. And I just thought, oh my gosh. So fast forward to college and I'm watching all these students show up in college, University of Michigan, freshman year. And all these people are really struggling to make a healthy decision for themselves. So of course I'm like holding counseling and coaching sessions in the little <laughs> like room, next, right? I mean, you know, like yeah. it was South Quad, Huber Hall and the, the little lounge at the end. I'm like holding session, like, are you okay? Mm. They're like, well, I just don't know if I can do this because then they won't like me. And I'm like, do you know, it doesn't matter what people think about you. Do you know that you have choice? At that age, that is revolutionary. That's not what we're taught. And the thing that I took away is I carried such great sadness for watching people who were human and just like me feel that they had no option in life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we cannot keep doing this. So my soul really made a decision at that point that, wow, I can help people with this because I've always known my choice. And that's always been my grace and privilege to know that and to have that all the way back to the playground. So if this is where people are stuck, I can help people with this. Mm-hmm. The corporate mindset, quote unquote, corporate America would say I'd have to be degreed to do that. And that looks like something called psychology. So that's how I ended up in psychology And I don't mind psychology as the space in which I formally started to do that work because, you know, I do think being in the right space and place and getting the right training and having the right conversations with self is authentically part of the journey. Where I became disenfranchised myself in the experience of psychology is it was so deficit oriented. And so you couldn't lift the light that people had in their soul. And I'm thinking, well, I know people tried to put me on the battlefield. And I know that the only way I got through the battlefield was not by fixing my weakness, but by rocking my strength, despite someone else's battle. So I'm thinking we have to have some mechanism through which we can empower people from their own sense of strength and well-being, that that's the best, most quickest and sustainable route to their own humanity. If we're not doing that, what are we doing? Can I interject something there? Because I'm kind of putting together. So I'm really digging into anti-racism right now and thinking about the deficit mindset of psychology created by white supremacy, which is to then continue to depress us and keep us from connection to ourselves and our own power. That's what I'm hearing. You got that right. I love it when I talk to people who know. So that is the biggest hoodwinkness that we got out of this 
very colonialized mindset, which I now affectionately call the corporate mindset, because then we embedded it into the way that we make money. And capitalism makes money off of our own distraction from our humanity. That is exactly it, such that I should teach you and convince you that you are too short to be a high jumper, even though you're already winning at that, to then say you should go get therapy and possibly coaching to reconcile that all through your 20s and 30s to find your wholeness again, the very one that I distracted you from in the first place. That is exactly it. And I'm going, we can't do this anymore now that people want to go back to the 80s and act like that's going to be some relevance. I'm not going to go back to a battlefield that was never mine, that it was not of my own making or creation. And even if you should ask me, I'm going to need you to pay me. (laughs) And I'm going to need you to pay me double for that because now I have all my own weapons. They are forged in steel. And if I'm going to take them off the rack, there's a fee for each weapon that I take off my rack because I've already won this battle and I now realize it was not mine. I don't even want to be paid for that. I was bored the first time around. Why would I go back? I'm designed for joy. Do you know that? I'm designed for joy. I'm not designed for your insecurities on a battlefield where you're trying to reconcile your inner conflict because somebody told you that you're not winning because somebody is in your way. Somebody who you want to act like looks like me. And there's space for everybody. Like, oh my God, the scarcity of capitalism and white supremacy. I'm, I, I literally just started seeing it crystal clear for the first time and I can't stop seeing it everywhere. Everybody's on some kind of battlefield in the scarcity mindset, freaking out because they're like, I got to fight a war and I don't know if I can even win. And then it's like, just stand up. There's no battlefield. There's no battlefield. The whole system was created to keep you distracted onto a battlefield. You could not have been put on this wonderful journey called life to fight. That could not be what we are here to do. So if we're not here to do that, and I'll share this because this is really important for me last year. I had already found positive psychology. I've been a strengths coach eight to 10 years more professionally And my soul said to myself, after all this journey, I'm a maximizer. Now I understand the corporate mindset strength I can call myself versus being a high jumper. So I Mm. say I'm a high jumper who became a maximizer. I've got over 20 years of being my maximizing self. I'm designed to help people lead through strengths from somebody who had to jump over their own head most of their life. I'm designed to do this. But here's the thing. My soul said to me, Monica, I wonder when we're going to stop fighting to fight. And I went, huh, that's a great question. And, you know, you kind of slow down when you hear yourself say things like that. And But I was still moving forward. And then my soul said, Monica, I wonder when we're going to stop fighting to fight, to never have to fight again. And my entire soul took in this breath like it was breathing for the first time. And I was like, oh, my gosh, right. So while I love being a maximizer, While I love it, it's still reactive to the very corporate mindset that had me on the battlefield to begin with. Mm -hmm. Right. How do we get off the treadmill? Right. How do we get off? So the only way that you can get off of that treadmill is you have to then go back into your soul where said treadmill never existed. Mm -hmm. Go back into your soul where there was never a treadmill. You're allowed to sit down, be the subject matter of your own existence Know your relevance is more for your light and your joy than it is for anybody's battlefield. 
And there, that's when my soul was like, Monica, you were designed to fly. Hmm. And I was like, oh, right. No wonder I couldn't put my hands on the ground. No wonder. And here's what I love. Here's what I love. If I'm a high jumper, high jumpers come with a title. They kind of come with a pay. You're allowed to be a high jumper until you're too old and then you can't high jump anymore. And then what are you? People don't even see you as an athlete because you're a female identified leader. And they were struggling with that anyway. (laughs) Now that I know I'm designed to fly, then what happened is all my data, yes, on high jump came back to me in a new light. And it did explain those early moments, but it also explained When I took a trip to Venice with my parents and they were lost and arguing, and I said, can I have the map? And I got them to the plaza that they were looking for in less than five minutes. And I turned around to my parents and said, this is what you're looking for. And my dad smiled and my mom freaked out because she thought you've never been here. How could you possibly know where we are? And now I could go, mom, I'm designed to fly. Don't you understand that? And if I'm designed to fly, then so are you. That was the real messaging. And then after I think about Venice, then I think about when I first took organic chemistry, I like aced it. I understood organic chemistry from the inside out. I just knew what it was. I had been there before. There's other spaces and places and moments in my life where it was my full self, my whole self in action. And it wasn't just the one that the corporate mindset allowed me to have. That title of being a high jumper, that explained a lot of it, but not all of it. This explains all of it. And if I go around saying I'm designed to fly, then guess what? That also comes with a higher price tag in the corporate mindset. Because now I'm not just their high jumper. I'm designed to fly. I'm a superhero. So you have to pay me more for that. Not that everything is about money, but I think trying to get out of the corporate mindset, people who are trying to navigate their humanity, one of the first questions that comes up for them is, can I really be who I want to be, who I think I'm designed to be, and feed my family? Can I do it and have enough money to live the life that I want to have? So I always say and share that in the journey of becoming your full self and your whole self, living into every ounce of your joy and inner light and navigating all the wisdom that comes from that, that you can get paid even more for. That you can get paid even more for in the corporate mindset because you're not playing their game. If you play their game, they win. It's designed for you to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you play the game, you automatically lose. Just be yourself, go into whole self, up into your strengths, turn light, turn joyful evolution, and beat the game all together. Because you're not here on life to play somebody else's game. Mm-hmm. You're here to live. Living requires you to breathe, to be whole, and in your own breath is all your light and wisdom. So sit down. And I think that's really important in these times when we've got all isms on the table, mm-hmm. people being triggered at multiple levels and multiple contexts. And we have to make our breath relevant for the revolution. Actually, the way to beat this game altogether is to simply breathe and know that you're not designed for that battlefield. Can we break this down a little bit? Because I'm always listening with an ear of somebody who is listening to the podcast and I don't want people to just think it's that easy because I know you don't think it's just that easy too, right? There's trauma, there's, you know, stuff that that really gets in the way for people. 
And I'd love to tease out some of the nuance of this because because when I hear you talk about it for recognizing that people are just projecting onto you, that's not typical, right? And I just was in therapy literally two hours ago talking about my fear of what people think of me, even though I am a person who has a lot of strength and resilience and I know I'm a badass and that sort of stuff, but that shit still comes up in me, right? So I'd love to like tease out some of this nuance of how you see for people who are really like stuck in the struggle right now, like how can we speak to them and give them access to this? Because I believe everybody, I believe that everybody is born to fly for sure. And it's covered in muck. It's covered in in white supremacy and capitalism and, and all of this shit that keeps getting in the way. So, but I don't want those people to walk away from this conversation going, well, that isn't going to work for me. Here's the way I would say it. Hold me accountable to the question. My first response is I can't dispel the shadows. I can't dispel the shadows, but in light, they are irrelevant. So let me break down what I mean by that. And I tell people all the time, I'm so sorry for the journey. I had the same journey. Mm -hmm. My mother is my greatest antagonist in life. Mm -hmm. My father never figured out how to love himself despite his trauma Mm -hmm. and then tried to pass it on to the next generation and his kids. Okay. This is real stuff. I'm not saying that the barriers in front of you are not happening to you in that sense, that they're not real and, oh, just put it down and be happy. See, joy is much more robust than that. Absolutely. Joy and happiness are different. Yep. Joy is every ounce of you at your best. And despite the trauma and despite Mm -hmm. the battles and despite everything that has felt like it happened to you, I am pretty certain that you are standing here, that you were still being who you are because you had strength and you had joy. And all I'm doing is saying that I think that that strength and that joy, that light in you, that has kept you alive for so long, grace and gratitude, I am giving that relevance and I'm giving that weight. And I'm saying I am choosing to see that side of you while I understand and honor your journey. Which is agency. Which is agency, exactly. Because the reality is, is that my mother still comes at me for shadows. She hasn't stopped. She doesn't know how to stop. And that's not my relevance. My relevance is my journey to know that I am designed for something else and to stand in the moments where I was at my best and to say, you know what, I choose to give my relevance to those moments. When you do that, you can honor the full journey of all of your life experiences. But when you think about those moments when you wake up and you have those inner questions about who you are and what you want to do with your life and what you want to do tomorrow, do you think you can do that presentation? Do you think you can do that project? You know, are you an imposter or are you not? I just want you to have the data from the other half of your soul, which is on light and joy. That's all this is. It's just been my experience that in light, there are no shadows. So let me give you a quick example. I'm not a foodie, which foodies feel very sad for me, but don't. I have a lot of allergies. If you're a foodie, think of your favorite food. Think of your favorite food. When you think of that food, you know how you have that inner smile and then you ha- usually people have a food dance that they do. <laughs> do they? People have a food and then they have a song. Usually I'm like, uh-huh, what song is it? And they're like, the song goes, doo, 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 doo. like they have wow. a whole thing around food. <laughs> and so I know what it's like for somebody, even if they're navigating all the struggles of the world, all the struggles of the world, 
when they have their favorite piece of cheesecake from that favorite restaurant, every time I see their joy. Mm -hmm. All I'm saying is, is that if we think about that moment, we have to be curious about that joy. You have to wonder when you're eating your favorite food, why don't you think of your worst meal? You don't think of the worst meal. You just are so happy and so grateful to be eating that favorite food. You have to wonder how you learned that that was your favorite food. You had to learn where, oh, it's not this restaurant, it's that restaurant. And some people have it down to the restaurant to the day of the week because that's when that chef makes it fresh. <laughs> Let's be honest. We have a whole way of engaging in this world that gives us access to our joy of food. Why don't we have that on who we are as leaders? We're missing that data. Mm -hmm. Why? Because somebody told us we were too short and therefore we couldn't win. So this is about breathing that back in. And it's historical trauma. You know, when I think about why why we're at the place we are now in terms of recognizing the psychology of where we've gotten it's historical and generational trauma right my mom and her struggles with being the child of an alcoholic and not doing any healing on herself she couldn't see me clearly and so passed that on to me right and i did not have <laughs> the capacity to deflect the shadows i didn't and and a lot of people don't and you know i know what she got from her mother and what she got from my great grandmother and and so on and so forth and it feels like we're at this point in history where we can no longer deny the pain. The pain has come to the surface so clearly that if we deny it anymore, we're just going to die. I love the way you're saying it. I think you're exactly right. And that's why I think joy has to become relevant to our bottom lines. That's exactly it. Because here's the thing. Again, you can't even stop the shadows. It is literally hitting every level of our souls. It is hitting every aspect of our lives. I have spoken to wonderful people that I have the great opportunity to work with, multiple deaths, multiple things going on, job transitions, careers coming to an end, new ones having to start all within 30 days. Like the amount of change and transformation that this world is asking of us right now is just more immense than we even knew could happen at one time. And so I think what's happening to your point is we have a choice. Either all those bullet points of trying to be somebody else's version of a human and a leader in this world, either we're going to continue to follow that and it's going to stay in front of our souls and we're never going to come into our whole self, or we're going to just flip the frame. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity to think about how can I flip the frame and not be reactive to the system? The offer and the invitation on the table is to go within go within, mm -hmm. reflect on the other side of your soul where you have all this data where you've been you and you being you made you smile despite the fact that your mother was being your biggest antagonist in life. Despite that, my parents, every, every day of my life, it's so interesting because I have these moments where I just think, oh my God, literally every day of my life, my parents fought all day long. All day long. They never agreed on anything. I can't think of one thing where they actually had agreement and shared any amount of productive love. You know, that love where you love yourself and then you're you're sharing your love with somebody else in a way where you can co-create. Both my parents have no idea what that is. And I'm not saying that makes them bad. I'm not saying anything, but that is their unresolved trauma on a battlefield, though, that was created before I was born. 
I am not here to solve that for them. Mm-hmm. I could never solve it for them. I am here to be who I am in my own humanity and hope to inspire them forward. That's the best I can do. So as I navigated that in my own life, because that was the only way I could survive because I was tanked in deficits all around me mm-hmm. and all the struggle. And they were trying to for sure pass that intergenerational trauma onto me. Because they didn't know any better. Because they didn't know any better. My only chance of survival was to go in and to go into places and spaces in my soul where I was working. Me being me was was making me smile and it seemed to make others smile. And I thought, huh, well, how about I follow that? Because I can't keep following all this negativity. You guys have literally, and I had a conversation with myself in middle school. I was out in my backyard and I was just playing with the dog. And it was one of the first conversations with my soul. And my soul was like, Monica, they've made us irrelevant and we're not even 15. And every aspect of of you is irrelevant. Your skin's too dark. Your hair's not the right hair. You're too short. My body size was too small for all my cousins, right? As women of color, supposed to have more of a full body. I was like, so essentially everything that I thought I liked about myself or liked myself enough, you guys are telling me is wrong. And I was like, the women in my family on average tend to live until they're 82, 83. Mm. And I'm already bored. You're trying to pull me to some battlefield where you're going to make me irrelevant and try and say, Monica, now live. Mm-hmm. And I'm bored. And so I just threw that whole model out of my system. I was like, that doesn't make sense. And I got rid of the whole thing at a very young age. So the ease of what I'm offering is to say, I see your light and I see your joy. And I know that that is more relevant than any shadow anybody's tried to put upon you ever. Mm -hmm. The challenge of what you're speaking to is, my goodness, some of us have 20, 30, and 40, and 50 years of having that shit shoveled down our throat. And I get that. I'm not saying unpacking that is just, hey, I'm going to step off the battlefield. But I am saying breathe. I am saying take a breath right now because that breath is your best hope of creating distance between you and that struggle and you and that trauma. And as you breathe, feel the other sides of yourself in which you've always been whole because you have had those moments. I have yet to meet a human being, despite all the trauma who has not experienced joy in their life. Mm -hmm. Rather remarkable ways, by the way, you can't tap into that. And even if your joy is the love of food, let's start there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good segue into the healer question. So I'm curious your answer. Are you a healer? I am an inspirer of your own healing. That's how I would say it. So I realized again in my journey at a very young age, everybody is responsible for their own healing. Mm -hmm. Other people are there to either inspire you into it, give you the knowledge you need to know, help you open the pathways for your soul to do its work. So I always use the word in partnership. I will say that I, I, my astrologists, as I sat down with them this year, said to me, Oh, Monica, you're designed to see past the wounds. And I was mm. like, yes, I see the wounds. I see the shadows, but I'm I'm just designed to see your light and find that more relevant. And I do think that for a lot of people who have not 
found it safe enough to be seen. Yeah. I think that that is a very, very healing experience. And I've had people come up to me and say, you see me. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're shining so bright. How could I not? <laughs> it's like glorious. I see it. Or like some people can see other people's auras. I'm not a, a person mm-hmm. who can see auras, but I've had people walk up to me and I'm like, your aura is huge. And I'm like, yeah, I believe you. I wish I could see it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell your ancestors that. Yeah, that's right. right. I love it. it. But that's exactly it. So it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. I think we all have gifts. And I think Mm -hmm. if we offer each other our natural gifts, I think that allows for natural inspiration. I think it is healing to see other people shine. I think it's healing to even stand in some of that light and be free to know that that light could be your relevance for yourself. I think to go on a journey where you are able to step into your own light and allow that to become your wisdom, I think that's healing. It'll get us to a place where once you navigate it, or at least it's been my experience, once you're really able to go all the way through and into joy, just like you said, you said it so perfectly. You're like, I see the battlefields all around me. What happens is, is especially as as an adult, not necessarily by chronological age, but by spirit. Once you see your light and you choose your own joy, you won't let anybody take it because once you see it, once you experience it, you won't let anybody take it. Now there are people, because I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to unpack that because I yeah. don't I don't agree. Yeah, and it's. I think it's great to get to investigate different points of view. Always. What else are we here to do? (laughs) Right. So number one, let me offer it differently. It's been my experience going back into my joy and capturing it for myself as a part of my own truth. Once I anchored on that truth and I understood it as my very being, there's nobody who could convince me that what I experienced in my joy wasn't real. They cannot take that from me once I know it to be true. Now, there are people who took it from me before I got to this place. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about that side of the journey because they mm-hmm. t- we had it as kids. I think we came into the world with yes, that. Yes, we do. Yeah. So they took it away, mm-hmm. made it irrelevant for my evolution, my sense of success and well-being in this world. That is where they took it. But now that I have it as an adult on this side of the journey, you can't take it away from me. It's mine. My experience and what I witness in my clients is for those of us who struggle with chronic shame, because that's something I personally struggle with and deal with a lot of clients with that. Getting closer to our true selves can actually be more terrifying than living in the darkness. And so what I've been finding in this new, this deeper level, I've been doing a particular type of therapy that's getting really deep and I continue to experience contraction away from that fullness because of the bind that I was put in in my childhood of you need to perform in order to be loved, but don't be too big because then you're selfish and you're narcissistic. And I've been riding this fine line, right, of keeping myself just big enough and just small enough, but I'm ready to move past that. And I've I've been feeling bound by fear of what people think, fear of, you know, people not liking me and all that sort of stuff. And so I have that light, I have that joy, and yet 
it's terrifying to really step into. So that's that's why I was a little bit like, nobody can take it from me. I could take it from me, right? And Ooh, I, I like that. I like that. Well, because of the way that society is structured, it's hard to fucking fight this system, right? Like when I put myself up against the system, I start to shrink and feel like I can't win because I can't erase capitalism and racism and all of these things. If anything else takes my light, that's one thing that does it because it's fear. Okay, so, so grace and gratitude for all of that. I could not agree with you more in terms of your delineation of the journey. I do want to say part of what I heard you just say is I see my light and I see my joy, but I've not chosen to step into it. Like you're just on the other side. So in full joy, when you step all the way in, there is a transformational elevation that happens. Mm -hmm. And what happens is your foundation upon which you stand shifts and you're no longer in the world of the colonial mindset. You pop out of it. And when you pop out of it, you'll see it for what it is because you'll have that dissonance and you'll have that space and you'll have full breath and you'll go, oh my gosh, I totally see it. I'll never go back. And you'll watch people try and pull you back Mm -hmm. and you'll be like, nope, can't go. Nope, Mm -hmm. can't go. And won't go, don't want to go. I'm going to stay over here because I've done that full work. So I'm with you on the journey. That is exactly what happens. And you're right. What is so scary is to pop out of what I call that corporate mindset. How am I going to, I've been taught that this is the way I have to live in order to be safe. So it feels unsafe to go into a world in which that's not relevant. However, I always say the greatest risk is to stay where you know you're not happy. The greatest risk is to stay where you know you're not happy. It just happened to be that my world crashed on me at such a young age that I could see no happiness going forward. And so I popped out at a very young age. So forgive some of my pacing. I speak to sort of the duality of navigating the journey from the beginning where I was totally under fire and on a battlefield to where I'm able to be now. But you're right, the unpacking of that took me from middle school into my 40s. But when you have it in the space of that knowingness and even young people, even kids who have it, that's why I'm loving some millennials and Gen Zers and whoever comes next is because there's part of their soul that is saying, I am not going to do that. Well, why not? That's entitlement. No, it is my humanity. It is my right And that's what they're saying to us. And so there's some kind of universal shifts that are happening where people are standing in their knowingness that I do not have to be here and try to figure out how I'm going to survive on your battlefield. They're knowing and they're like, I'm not doing that. And then asking myself to be healthy on the weekends, asking myself to breathe when I go on a vacation that you give me permission to go on. No. We're not going to do that anymore. So that's sort of the difference is going all the way up and through. And here's what I will say to your point. Now, African-American culture, which is the ethnic culture that I identify with, doesn't really have shame embedded into it in the same way that other cultures do, not even knowing how you fully identify. But so African-American culture doesn't have shame because um, we're still close enough to the civil rights movement and the notion of being physically on that battlefield, what happens is is that there is more cultural dialogue and discourse and permission, therefore, to stop being somebody else's version of a human. 
the skin color difference mm-hmm. for every layer of difference that you have, that additive effect of it is like, well, you know what? I'm so different. Your game is irrelevant mm-hmm. to me. You have permission that you can give yourself and your culture will support that. So that that's a big difference. That is my better half. My partner is Israeli identified and boy, shame is embedded in it. And I've really had to learn how to be supportive of a healing journey on shame. It is different. It is a different sort of battlefield. So I want to just honor that that has not been my lived experience, although I'm aware of it. So my sort of intersectionality as a contextualized being walking around the world, the way I pop in and out is very different than those who are embedded in that cultural narrative around shame. Um, Because the shame has a tethering to it that you can't unlock it and be whole and be human and be a good child to your parents, to your culture when it's tethered in that way. So I do understand that and appreciate that. I will say as an African-American female identified leader, for me, what I had to navigate were all the isms that were very sort of isms reacting to my physical being and presence. I also had to deal with the superwoman complex, which they just impose a superpower cape on your back one day when you walk off the playground, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. just save the world, the family, the community, and all for free. And they just call it being strong. Right. So there is that journey where you have to realize that I actually am not designed to be strong for you. And that took me a long time to put that down. I had to then take off the superwoman cape that was, I had to see that it was there. I had to take it off. I didn't know what to do with it. Eventually, the same year that I saw it and took it off, I sent it to the dry cleaners because I was like, you're just stinking over there. So I sent it to the dry cleaners to get cleaned. And when it came back, I did the smartest thing. I sort of visibly put it, not in just the dry cleaning bag, but I put it in one of those garment bags that you have to zip. And I put it all the way back at the back of the closet. Now, interestingly enough, I couldn't get rid of it. I didn't go resell it. I didn't burn it. It's at the back of the closet because culturally, as a woman of color, I have to hold on to it. Should should we really have to do the bag? Like that's where it was. Yep. There's a lock on the zipper. I have <laughs> lost the key. I have no idea where the key is anymore. And so I'd have to find the key to unlock it, to unzip it, to get it out of the bags, to put it on. There is a process and a journey of laying down that burden to say, is it that I am a person of color in this world and that to be in struggle is my cultural identity? <laughs> is that real? Is that what I'm here for? I've decided I don't think that that's what I'm here for. I think that's our cultural dynamics still trying to survive and breathe on the battlefield. Yeah. So in the name of my own humanity and my culture and in the name of unlocking all isms, because I really believe it's that same mindset that leads to all isms as we even put isms upon each other with different cultural identities. It is my belief that part of this movement, part of this transformative sort of evolution that we're moving into is for us to actually flip the foundation upon which we see each other and choose to step into joy because it's much more productive for self and others. So Mm -hmm. I believe that that is part of, I don't want to be the struggle anymore. 
Mm-hmm. I want to truly stop struggling and know that I'm designed to not fight, to never have to fight again, because I don't want anybody else to keep dying for this. And I don't want people to keep suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming to the end of the hour and I, I want to make sure to get to the wounded healer question before we wrap up. So do you identify or how do you feel about the term wounded healer? So I thought about this and my soul said to me, I stepped beyond the woundedness. I receive woundedness. I receive my own, but I also know that I'm designed to see beyond the wound. I'm Mm -hmm. designed to see beyond the wound. Mm -hmm. So I stay with that. So if you put beyond the wounded healer, (laughs) if you put something seeing past the woundedness, I would receive that. Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe we are in constant evolution, but I also think that that is life. And I choose evolution, not as something I fear. I don't think we should fear change in ourselves. Mm I feel like we've been socialized to do that as well. I just see change as a part of my own evolution. So anytime that that woundedness comes up, I'm happy to see it as a part now knowing that I'm safe because I'm not on that battlefield right now in Mm -hmm. safety and in safe spaces. I know it's okay for me to reflect on that, to take any joy, wisdom or lessons learned that I need from that and to keep it moving forward Mm -hmm. and to do something productive with that. Thank you. How can people reach out to you? How can they find you? So it's Dr. ML Black and or the Leadership Maximizer, Joyfully Maximizing Leaders from Within. We're actually launching a new project called The Big Joy Theory. And part of the reason why we're doing it is exactly why I was so excited about this conversation today. So thank you so much because we're going to be allowing and creating spaces and places and joy trackers so people can have access to the data on the other half of their soul. So you can follow me at bigjoytheory.com and it's being powered by Tandem Spring. So Tandem Spring is all about leading and living in life together and knowing that through that partnership and that co-creation that we can spring each other forward. Many thanks to Monica for sharing her time and talents with us today. If you'd like to find out more information about Monica, we've got all of her stuff up on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time. Bye-bye.